Welcome to episode 5 of Spirit Keeping with A&D Royo, Michelle Belanger and Housekeeper Roo. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Spirit Keeping Podcast. I am your host, El Rio. And I am your host, Aldo Rio. So, everyone, we have a very special guest on this podcast, as you guys know from the title. One of my childhood idols, <laughs> my childhood like memories and just absorbing like I'm I, I was a huge fan of her work. I was. It's Michelle Ballinger. Michelle Ballinger. <laughs> Uh, she should need no int- introduction, but I know some some of you folks might be a bit new to the occult world and learning a couple of things. But she has written uh, quite a few books. I believe it's over twenty books on different various aspects of the world of true mm-hmm. vampirism, right. like psi vampirism, mm-hmm. uh, sanguinarius vampirism, um, lifestyle. As you guys know, she was in a TV show before, and that's. When I kind of got an introduction of her and was still studying about the occult and about the paranormal just in general. And she actually, I saw another side of embracing my type of shamanistic background. And Alden can tell you guys that I embraced it when I was very, very young. And I have childhood stories of people actually telling me that, you know, I changed their lives for the better when it came down to reading different types of teachings and different types of pantheons. Like, what about, like, you too? Like, the bookstore was your best friend. And we were talking about that. You know, going to uh, the mall. Yes. And going to the cult section. Like, till this day, Papa Rio always goes to the cult section and I'm like... There he goes. There he goes. Yes, I actually picked up her book. <laughs> I picked up her book when I was very, very young. I went uh, right to the right to the occult section, and I would just stand there, look at the you know, look at the items, and mm-hmm. pick up the stuff and see which ones feel right to me, and, and you know, pull open a cover, and I would do that a lot. You know, whenever I would find a mall, I would love books in the exactly yeah. books a million, Barnes and Noble. Um, did you like Borders when they were when they were in business? I mean, any 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 major bookstore because a lot of oh, the wow. smaller bookstores didn't really have an occult section. You know, you, you would go right. in and it would just be religion and it would be nothing. You know, I used to go to like KB Kids Toys and I would always go in the magic section, like mm-hmm. like the the whole kits like like where you can be like a magician, or I'll like see like the Ouija board, which is. This, you know, a spirit board, and I got my first Ouija board, and we talk about the Ouija board on this podcast, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I really want to dive into it, but Michelle, you know, it was her time, her free time, and, you know, she, she, we, we had troubles with the, with the sites and everything. Now we're entering a retrograde, so guys, be careful with communication, because people can be lost in communication and translation. Right, and then, and then on top of that, oh my we, gosh, we, yeah. we just went through the energies of a super moon which uh, we didn't see because it was so cloudy right but it's also a super blood moon too so like you know you, you, i'm sure you folks have heard of the word lunatic you know like the key word in there is luna so a lot of people say people can go crazy right around the time when the moon is full this super moon means that the moon is literally closer to the earth than it will be all year mm-hmm. so you got that magnified moon energy getting in 
the middle of so much stuff on top of the Mercury retrograde situation. So if you got people who aren't communicating properly, it's easy to get into fistfights and all kinds of troubles, I would imagine. Right. I just remember with like going into like KB Kids Toys and going to like the magic section and the Ouija board was it. That's where I got my first Ouija board. And it was a glow in dark one. And it's cool because when you t put your hands on the board, it um, takes the imprint of your hand. It was it was amazing and it scared my cousins and my sister when we were playing it underneath the blanket at my cousin's home. And we were in the basement and there was like a guest room in the basement. And we just had so much fun with that and we didn't know what we were doing, but I'm sure something tried to come. However, that nope nothing came it was just all fun and games you know we didn't you know say we didn't do like a a summon or anything like that because we didn't know better we're just doing it for fun we read the directions we ask the questions and now since we have communicate a better communication divination tools it's really easy for us to actually you know open and close the circle ground and center banish it's it's very convenient now knowing the knowledge of Michelle's teaching when it comes to protection or reading the psychic energy codex, like reading about like ambient feeding and, 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 and knowing more about the culture and just the different terminations in the culture. Now, before you guys dive into this podcast, I would say I was very ignorant at first about the before we dive into it, I was like very ignorant with, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you guys, about the vampire culture when I was younger. I got introduced to that in, you know, on my in my adult years. What we realized is that there's different people that practices this uh, or, or is in the lifestyle of a vampire or is, is um, that's, that's just their lifestyle. You guys see this a lot in TV too, in different reality tv shows apparently that we saw too that was a really recognizable person or real recognizable vampire in the vampire community which you guys can see that on youtube it's just really cool to talk to someone who i read when i was in high school high school getting her books and actually that was an introduction to a lot of my temple mates when it came to energy feeding and being the lifestyle of the vampire, of course they thought it was crazy, but when <laughs> Michelle, if you're listening to this, your book made me, <laughs> your book taught English to these people. And y'all know that English is not my first language. I was like trilingual. I, I knew three different languages. So of course, like my conjugation is different too. So Michelle, that is the book that I introduced to all ages in that classroom because they need to learn English and instead of learning English or in both hands, they learned about energy feeding, the history, and that I am a weird chick. So I would say for me, um, the book I picked up so long ago, it kind of introduced me to the fun part of like the occult world like yes. the world where you can get instant results like you can right. feel the energy like when it, when you try to shield it doesn't take very long you know isn't it funny how like people are open-minded too like during that like the time like when the occult world was like being introduced like well people... it, it's just that a lot of people want to feel something so soon mm -hmm. some people don't like having to um take so long to 
uh, because some people can't sense energy at all. And I, now I do feel feel kind of bad for those who weren't able to get the results out of it. But if Wait. you do, it's like it's like a it's like an instant. Oh my gosh! Like this is real. Like you you get instant verification. And then that kind of right. that kind of led me further and further down the path of, of picking up other people's books. You know, believing about how your will can uh, can be pressed upon things in the tangible world and make them change, make them move. Right. And uh, I, I I feel like she was a perfect gateway for me. So if you're someone listening to this and you're like young-ish, definitely like you know pop over there, have a look at some of her stuff, and then you'll be surprised if you start to apply these things. How the world will bend and change around you how you'll get your verification exactly without further ado this is michelle ballinger hey, hello michelle. michelle how are you how are you i'm doing i'm doing well hi michelle how are you i'm hanging in there considering how crazy the world is things are so wild but things are winding down i hope everyone's okay with you and you, your family and your inner circle yeah, honestly, it's been pretty good. Like, like things have been good enough on this end that it feels a little guilty knowing friends have had such a hard time with it. So much of my work can be taken care of at home without traveling, so I was nicely set up for stuff. Yes, we definitely appreciate you taking the time to uh, speak with us. We are huge fans of yours, so um, we, I first purchased a book of yours like 20 something years ago so like it's wild like that was the opening of understanding and, and learning more about you but we find that the spirit keeping community they don't really have a good understanding about vampires they okay. they really don't understand so we wanted to get you to kind of explain to them and and kind of and kind of get them to understand like what vampires are where they come from uh explain that explain that they do live uh in this date date and time and also to kind of get your experience if it, if you've had any with people who actually are having conjurers connect them with spirits of other beings and sometimes vampires as well so mm -hmm. um, have you had any experience in the area of spirit keeping have you run into run into anyone before uh, folks who, who work with spirits especially vampiric spirits to kind of like call them in or uh like even maybe using the spirit companions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that is, that's part of my wheelhouse. I do that. I do some of that myself. How common is that actually in the, uh, in the vampire community? It's interesting because 20 years ago, um, and, and, and then some less so, uh, there was a lot more of uh, distinct different areas of practice. There were folks who were blood drinkers uh, and that was their expression for vampirism. And they really didn't explore a lot of magic uh, or energy work or mysticism and then there, there there's like a whole spectrum of other aspects and as time has worn on and there's been a lot more dialogue between uh different communities energy worker communities uh spirit speakers uh witches uh, occultists vampires all of it what you've seen is an exchange of ideas and an exchange of practices and people becoming a little more open to integrating uh, new ways of approaching reality. Uh, and, and as a result, in the past, I don't know, uh, five, ten years, I've seen a lot more folks in the vampire community uh, explore the idea of the spirit world, uh, their interactions with spirits, uh, what that means, especially from the perspective of like the vampire archetype as a being that walks between, you know, neither part of the living nor of the dead. Uh, which, you know, if, if you're familiar with uh, with, with tech, you know, basic shamanic ideas and, and ideas of like the psychopomp, it kind of neatly centers uh, somebody who follows the vampire as a spiritual archetype to be a mediator between the living and the dead. 
and especially working with the spirit world and kind of reaching across by their their very nature. So I've seen a lot more of it. Yes, yes. we do have a few a few people who have come to us through through the channel and uh, being connected with spirits of vampires is one of the uh, I guess more more popular conjures uh, mm -hmm. that people go after, and we've noticed that they are most certainly being connected with the spirit world even stronger through through the connections of vampires like they're actually getting more sensations in their dreams they're actually starting to, to hear them um there and some people are seeing them in their third eye more when they're dealing with the vampires uh, specifically let me see the first place that i personally ran across the idea of vampiric spirits uh, astral vampires that that no longer had any connection to a physical body but still had you know, reality and identity and, and power was in Dion Fortune's Psychic Self-Defense. Um, and, and Lord, I, I wrote, I read that 30 years ago. I, I was, I was a freshman in college. So like 1991. Uh, and it, it was an electric moment for me to find that someone else was describing things that I had experienced and, and someone who was, you know, lauded as an expert in their field her sections on both psychic vampires and astral vampires were, were pretty revelatory to me. And, and I've definitely seen people consciously work with uh, that the type of spirit that has transcended, for lack of a better term, the cycle of death and rebirth, but maintains that vampiric nature in order to empower themselves, in order to continue and, and feed their existence and not necessarily in the way that Dion Fortune wrote about it, because she saw it as universally a bad thing. Like, from that, that was the one downside to reading her work was she was very negative about it. She she pretty much blatantly said that only black magicians, very dark practitioners, like sought to do this and sought to work with such spirits that they were universally predatory. Um, and anybody who's worked with stuff like that knows that that's not the case. Um, it's you know it, it's like people. Some people are, are terrible people and, you know, they're, they are going to take advantage of you. And there are plenty of people who, if you understand how to communicate with them, you do so respectfully and you work with them, you can have a fantastic uh, companionship, uh, partnership. Do you feel that spirit keeping is a form of slavery? A lot of times, a lot of um, newcomers when it comes to spirit companionship, would call spirit keeping as spirits uh, as a uh, slavery. What's your take on that? I suppose it depends on how you approach the spirit keeping. Um, is it an invitation or is it a compulsion? Do you bind or do you request? I know for myself, it always comes from a place of invitation and request. Uh, and if one of the spirits that I work with is is not interested, uh, then fine, that's great. I would rather have someone who is exuberant to work with me than someone exactly. who is doing it against their will. You know, most of most of ceremonial magic uh, is, is really attuned to uh, the, the whole summoning and binding and compelling and, and finding ways to sort of trick spirits into service to you in, in a way that's very reminiscent of like the Arabian Nights stories of jinn. And I, I think that's just not a great approach. It's, well, first of all, that's, that's not the kind of partnership you want. Like, yeah, you can boss people around and you can force them to do things for you, but are you going to get the same type of work out of it um, if somebody resents you for, for what you're trying to get them to do? Or 
do you say, here's what I have to offer and here's what I need. And can we meet in the middle? Are we, are, are we capable of making this a partnership rather than um, either side forcing the other to do something? A lot of times in the speaking community too, like a lot of people buy, um, they actually purchase or consult with conjurers out of impulse. And mm-hmm. it's, it kind of gets kind of intimidating when you have all of these different vessels or bind to spirit or um, just your keep in general in your home that you can get a little bit intimidating. That's what we try to tell our, um, we call them pathfinders for our program. You know, trying to tell them, kind of separate impulsive, um, impulsivity uh, with buying conjurers or or bringing them into your into your keep um, versus, you know, you kind of have a I scratch my back, you, you scratch my back kind of a a um, a deal at in in some cases. That's really cool that you kind of like separated both kind of categories when it comes to um, spirit keeping. I had a friend who um, did a did a world tour as as part of like his his college stuff, kind of like seeking himself. And one of the things he brought back, he spent some time in um, the Philippines specifically, and he met and worked with a Philippine a Filipino shaman who gifted him this uh, monkey skull that had a spirit bound into it, and it was made to be a guardian. And my friend brought it back and gifted it to me because he wasn't quite sure what to do with it, especially because he, he my, my friend thought of himself more as a secular humanist. Uh, so he liked to experience lots of different belief systems, but more from almost an anthropological point of view. He, he graciously accepted the gift uh, as a sign of respect, realized that there was definitely something up with it that he was not comfortable with. So, so it ended up being mine. First of all, let me full disclosure, Monkey Skull still hangs near the front door and does his work as a guardian. But I wasn't entirely comfortable at the time with the idea of, you know, who got put in here or what got put in here and was it against their will or, or with their will? Uh, and, and my friend wasn't clear enough on it. it. His understanding was this had been something that was called and bound and tied into it. Uh, and it was enlightening because I, I sat down and got acquainted with the object and the spirit attached to it. And I was like, okay, so here's the deal. I don't really believe in binding because I wouldn't enjoy it much myself. Are you happy doing what you're doing? Like, I will let you go if you want to be let go. Uh, And in this particular case, the spirit was uh, very content uh, with, and, and, and seemed like if it really hadn't wanted to be placed in the object, it could have resisted um, and and broken out, but generally kind of enjoys uh, being the the guardian of the house, watching things come and go, uh, occasionally spooking uh, folks who come over who don't expect this uh, black painted monkey skull and like a little woven basket thing to just sort of like randomly turn and look at them. It's, it's, it's a very lively object. He's, he's pretty cool. Do you think it's because they, the, the being bonded with uh, their human companion there was definitely, in order for it to be protecting the home. Yeah, there was definitely bonding. Um, Monkey Skull sees it as a job, enjoys the job, enjoys this existence as uh, a curiosity. It's it's really interesting. I I straight up was like, okay, do, do you have a name? You know, what do you, what do you want me to call you? I'm you know ninety nine percent certain you are not in fact a monkey. 
Um, but Monkey Skull is just like, no, just just call me what I am. I'm, I'm, I'm Monkey Skull. Just monkey, monkey, monkey. It's fine. That relationship, because this is clearly not a human spirit, does not have a psychology that really even parses as human. Um, very much operates on, on, on a scale and in a realm that I think we're lucky that it connects to, and it is human adjacent to at least some of the, the goals. Uh, but in that place of adjacency, yeah, it's, it's perfectly possible to find a mutually beneficial relationship. Yes, we have noticed that working with creature spirits is a bit different than working mm-hmm. with angels and working with beings that are used to communicating, I guess, through English. Yeah. Uh, we, a number of the folks that we have on our forum and things, they've been using pendulums. Uh, a few people mentioned that they just broke down and just began using the Ouija board. Um, have you had anyone that used the Ouija board or misused it and come across it where they were having problems? Because that seems to be something that we're continuously seeing. If they're mm-hmm. not spirit keeping with the Ouija board, they tend to run into issues if they don't uh, use it properly and store it away properly. Well, yeah, certainly like any tool, if you don't treat it with respect um, and, and treat it as a ritual object, uh, you know, be ma- maintain the energy in a way that is conducive to your practice, that is uh, helpful um, for, for your space, it can get kind of messy. And I think the other problem with the Ouija board is of, of all of the many tools that we have available to us, it's one of the ones that's been picked up by pop culture and the media, and there's a myth about it, like a very pervasive myth of how problematic it is. And I think as magical workers, we should never underestimate the power of those myths to help shape the potential of an object, or at least our expectation of it, our relationship with it. So we have to take into account that on some level, um, even if it's only unconscious, we expect this to be a problematic device. We, we worry on some quiet level that maybe there's danger, which means we should always approach it with some protections in place, if for no other reason than to put our own fears at rest so that we are not unconsciously calling, causing problems to ourselves, calling problems in. The other fun like quirk with Ouija boards, uh, with spirits, especially things that are either so old that English is really not their thing, um, or things that are so non-human that this is not a method of communication that makes sense to them, is the long, slow, and often awkward learning period of them trying to figure out how to even effectively communicate on this device, where mostly you'll end up with just the planchette will move, but it'll spiral around, or it'll just swing back and forth. It's almost like you're getting a busy signal or a dial tone, a really interesting thing I've seen is where the spirit is clearly trying to perceive through the people using the board to try to figure out like, what is this thing supposed to be doing? But but then there's, that results in this long process of, okay, going painstakingly from like letter to letter and, and what, almost like mapping um, right. the surface of the board. It, it's fascinating to watch, but if you if you don't know to expect it, you're like, what? What's even going on? Like, like, why is it giving me gibberish? Uh, it, it is because it's learning how this works. And don't jump to conclusions about any messages that come through during that learning period. Is I guess the the best thing I can say. Exactly. I I always uh, tell my pathfinders and people who view our live streams that you're gonna have to kind of talk to them on an elementary level. There's sometimes beings that 
you know, especially creature um, beings that don't know how to take, you know, an offering or even use a planchette or even a pendulum. Mm-hmm. And at times we have to coach these, our, our companions saying, hey, this is how you do it. You know, it's, it's, or, you know, shuffle Nancy and, and things of that nature. Like we have to tell our pathfinders that it's kind of like either, either teacher, student, and, and the companion actually understands how to communicate at a, a human level or a mundane level. I sometimes think of it as, uh, you know, the, the spirit worker, you're, you're the diplomat to that realm and you're dealing with uh, beings like of many different cultures, for, for lack of a better way of, of carrying the metaphor forward. And your role as a diplomat first is to try to understand where they're coming from and then figure out how do you best build a bridge so that they can understand what right. you need and, and what contracts or compacts you're trying to present. Uh, you cannot assume that they will understand where you're coming from. Like you, you are the one who has to make those initial forays. Um, it's it's very much on you. Um, our viewers like a like protection, like rituals that they can do or protective precautions or measures before they even use a spirit board. Mm. I like, especially if it's something that I'm going to do for, for ritual tools, I like to make the thing myself if it is at all feasible. So the board that I personally use is one that I designed and one that I hand burned and oh did that uh, like 1999, 2000. We've had it since then. I also have uh, like a little four line. I don't want to think of it as a prayer because I don't really pray to deities exactly. It's more an affirmation, uh, a statement of intent uh, on the back that uh, affirms that like what what we invite are, are only things that want to communicate within the boundaries of behaving well and like, you know, setting rules of engagement. I make a point of reciting that at the opening and at the closing of the board. And I think of it as opening and closing the board. Uh, so in the same way that I open and close ritual space or, or sacred space, so that within the bounds of this stated, this is what the intent is supposed to be, now we can have this sort of container for that interaction and there's a natural point where we can say goodbye can shut it off can be like okay now we're not doing that anymore and that helps close it both for the spirits and also for us uh, so that we're no longer unconsciously trying to engage and be open for the spirit board what if the conversation with an entity or a being gets too intimidated um Mm. what what do you suggest us doing when you know it's a someone gets freaked out or you know a a person doing it solely gets freaked out i mean the first thing is is to recognize that fear opens us to a lot of potentially bad outcomes that we might be causing ourselves but that doesn't mean that they're not real um so so if it becomes scary or threatening if, if your gut tells you that this is going in a direction you are not comfortable with uh your first thing is you want to shut that down. Um, don't react aggressively initially um, in the same way that a conversation with a human uh, in the regular physical world, if that conversation starts to get uncomfortable, you set a boundary. You, you go, I'm, I'm not comfortable with this. I'm going to stop having this conversation. I'm going to do back away and we're going to close this down. That's the first step that I take whenever it gets a little out of hand with communication over a spirit board. If 
what is on the other side starts to push against that and not respect those boundaries, that's when you get, you know, by stages increasingly more aggressive. I always go with defense first, setting up spirit walls and, and, and energetic shields and then actively shutting the board down. It can help to flip it over, mostly because of the psychological impact that has on you. You are no longer looking at it as a point of communication. You can't be drawn back into that communication. Psychology is good magic. So flip it over, you know, re re first, you know, re remove your fingers from the planchette, remove the planchette, flip the board over, uh, clearly state that you are not comfortable, that you are shutting down the communication, um, give them some warning to back off and then create a clear boundary and break the energy, break any of the connections that you feel may be uh, established to that board, yourself or your space through that communication. At least in my experience, when spirits try to communicate with us, try to connect to us, there are tiny micro filaments of energy that connect between them and us, uh, along which intent and emotion and energy and thought are, are transmitted. It's a way of interfacing. Um, and especially with a, with a casual or an initial communication, cut those, find where they're at, like clear them off, detach, decouple uh, as another way of affirming like this is done and over. And if it is still a problem, physically remove yourself from the place where you had that conversation and then go through whatever process you personally find empowering for cleansing, shielding, and, and setting up your protections. Wow, I think that's actually a very clever method. Thank you so much for that. that mm -hmm. She's giving me tips, actually, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I mean, especially... I've had to handle some pretty off-the-wall situations with, with that one, that particular method in, in specific. Now, let's say that um, a person doesn't do that, um, a person using the Ouija board do that. Is, is it, are they, can it be likely, can they be likely being influenced by the being itself with the spirit board? Well, any method of communication, you are inviting that contact and any method of communication, whatever object you're using, those little filaments happen. You're, you're starting to build this rapport with a spirit. Those connections are things that you use yourself as you increase and deepen that relationship. Now you, you have a tie, you have a bond. If you do not find a way to close that, to cut it off, to detach yourself, whether it's a spirit board or not, what happens? You have this unresolved connection, a little filament of energy where thoughts and emotions and influence will pass back and forth, which you will notice probably most keenly when you sleep, in your dreams, when your mind wanders and you enter vis visionary states. If you enter, enter any kind of light trance, you are a little bit more open to the influence of, of, of the what passes through that. And so it behooves you, if, if you are not, A, comfortable with the spirit, you don't fully trust the spirit, you haven't established, you know, really good boundaries and know that that spirit will, tr will, will respect them, you want to be very clear about making sure you don't maintain those connections, that you make them a temporary thing within the boundaries of whatever interaction you've set up. And then when you're done, it's done. You're not still attached because you will definitely 
there, there's so many doors it opens for influence either subtle or potentially pretty devastating like in my experience the the most devastating attack a spirit can make on a, on a human being um isn't scratching them isn't pushing them is it's the long game of slow emotional influence just simply feeding them an emotional sense that they mistake for their own whether that is desolation depression anger um it doesn't have to be negative but the ones that we notice as as attacks are usually negative where it just slowly pushes you off kilter toward whatever it wants you to do so this influence is like possibly like a whisper in the ear not so say like possession no not not as obvious as possession it's actually devastating because you don't notice it it's oh uh, like the 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 worst it's it's not obvious you just find yourself suddenly like you're, you're crankier than usual. Like you, for some reason, in certain, yeah, in certain rooms, like there, there's just a, an emotion that starts to build up and it starts so subtly that you assume, oh, I must just be feeling off. Maybe I'm depressed this week. Like, and it builds and it builds and it builds. And usually by the time you realize that there's an external influence for it or, or ruled out all of the like personal you possibilities to go, oh, this is not actually me the connection is strong enough that it then does become a fight to, to remove that influence. Definitely makes a lot of sense. So when I first got into angel magic, one of the authors of the, of the original books that I read mentioned that uh, practitioners uh, specifically of angel magic should definitely get into doing banishings at least twice a day mm-hmm. because we were calling to so many different uh, types of angels from different pantheons, um, from different ages. And they it seems from the author's point of view, they were saying that you're opening yourself up and you're creating all these connections. I never really thought about the micro connections that could come from some of the pantheons uh, observing you when you call to these angels, because sometimes you can feel that mm-hmm. they are more than just that one angel. Sometimes it right. feels like they come into the room, see who this is, who had the, I guess the I guess the uh, non-fear, for lack of a better term, to call to this angel. And and they would actually assess you as the original angel that you called would come in. So doing those banishings seemed to kind of wipe away any connection uh, from anybody getting in between you and that particular angel. So it does make a lot of sense that you mentioned about those kind of banishing style cleansings. Yeah. Yeah, whatever method works for you best, but you want to think of it as, um, as, as cobwebs, as... They function a lot like what they describe as a silver cord in an astral projection, where they, they seem to be of the same stuff, tensile, uh, but like it takes a very long time for them to anchor into a person to a point where they're not just you know easily plucked away. I mean, a long time. Uh, it's possible for them to start to set in roots. And again, this can be harnessed and can be a, a positive way of establishing a very long-term uh, mutually supportive and mutually influenced relationship with with any entity, but when all you're doing is calling something up and you just get that little that little whisper of attention, that's that's a little thread and that's a little thread and like the next conversation and they're interested in what you're feeling and being able to read what you're feeling. That's a thread. That's a thread. That's a thread. And if all you wanted to do was have a conversation, you want to clear all that off. Now, have you noticed or felt or are you aware of anyone in in the community, uh, especially people who are like public figures like yourself being the target 
of because of either race, sex, or their sexual orientation, and in like trying to connect, I guess through their videos or through their books. Have you noticed that or felt anyone trying to, I guess, put those things on you or connect with mm. you in that way? So actually, that's a fantastic question because it's less among practitioners and it's more among people who don't quite understand the power of people's attention. Uh, I, I've worked with a number of folks who, you know, found themselves celebrities quickly and, and in a way where they felt grossly unprepared for the attention of that many minds. Our culture's relationship with celebrity is uh, frankly toxic, especially for the celebrities. It's, you know, we don't culturally have demigods and, and you know, mythic heroes. We have movie stars. We have the person who is uh, the focal character of our favorite live stream. And suddenly there are a hundred thousand minds thinking about that person, having their image of how that person should be, having in many ways a relationship with that person in their mind and all of that is us, all of those are, are subtle threads that can take energy away, leech energy away, uh, influence the person with expectation, or at least, at the very least, burden them with this sort of constant draining background noise. And again, when you're not a practitioner, you have no clue how to shield, you know, what, what grounding and centering is, how to banish any of that stuff. You just suddenly feel yourself uh, kind of crushed by the weight of this sweeping expectation. You, you watch so many people in the public eye, uh, especially overnight celebrities, especially people who really never expected that to happen. You see the toll that it takes on them. And there is a metaphysical toll there. As practitioners, uh, I've definitely seen situations where like uh, different groups or individuals will have enough of a knowledge of how that works that they use the imago, the, the, the image of the person um, as it appears on television or on, on a live stream or just the voice in a, a recording and uses that consciously as a way of trying to zero in on them, anchor to them and either borrow some of their power uh, or to influence them, uh, dream walk to them, something like that. Yes. Uh, it, it certainly happens. Um, sometimes it's nefarious. Sometimes it's completely unconscious on, on the person's part. And they, they really just want to make a connection. And most of us just, especially I want to focus, like not practitioners, when you're not a practitioner, it's so easy to not see how potent that image is. That there's really no such thing as distance when you're talking about spirit or energy and that focus and attention married with will can allow someone to leap to you, to connect to you. Um, and that now you, you become entangled on a, on a certain level. I've worked with a number of folks who were not practitioners who found themselves in a, a celebrity position uh, over the years on how to both shield and, and sort of manage that energy that comes at them, how to harness it under certain circumstances, because you don't want to block it out entirely. If you just kind of put up a shield and rebuff what people are giving to you, that they feel rejected, like they feel that too. Of all people who I've observed do this best, Dolly fucking Parton. There is an interview where she straight up says, and it, it admits she's a psychic vampire, and she describes how she works with 
uh, her celebrity and the energy people put on her and send toward her, where she makes it a cyclic thing. She takes all of that to support her, to sort of feed into the egregore of Dolly Parton, <laughs> and then also cycles it back. Um, and mm -hmm. if you are someone who has enough will and, and, and honestly chutzpah to be able to to ride that, there is an incredible amount of power in it. Wow. <laughs> um, is there a connection to enhanced spirituality with members of the LGBTQ plus community? Historically, across many cultures, there are so many instances of people who fall between who fall outside of like nor heteronormativity um, in, in various cultures, where they are called in some respect, where they are walkers between, where they are the, the shaman, the medicine men, uh, to the point where multiple cultures have like specific roles set aside for people like that, um, right. that, are, that are seen as inherently magical, seen as inherently mystical. There's definitely something there. Uh, it's it's interesting if you just watch like the TV psychics who you know probably aren't even conscious of that effect, but you know how many of them are queer, and the ones that aren't necessarily open about a lot of them. Queer, you're like, <laughs> a lot oh. of them. Are. <laughs> yeah, no, an awful lot of them are queer. It, it was it was sort of a joke on Paranormal State of like how how many how many pieces of the rainbow did we have on that crew? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, speaking of paranormal state, um, have you had any conversation with with Ryan Bill? Like in the, I guess since the show was, uh, I guess ran its course. We stayed in contact for a while thereafter. Um, he he started to have some some pretty significant personal problems, and yes. I, I think that it's fair to say that we had a disagreement on what would be the best way of handling those. And so it just seemed better for me to withdraw because I, I gave some advice and. Some of that was about like managing energy and managing, um, you know, the, the impact of, of stuff. And uh, you know, there's there's a point where if you give advice three times and the person is still pushing back against it, uh, the wisest thing to do is to just let them do whatever they're doing. Referring back on the paranormal states, um, like clips on A E or on YouTube, I I noticed that whenever. Alfie music or or even you or Lorraine not Lorraine um but you or Alfie talking about spiritual practices I really don't see Ryan's reaction um it always cuts to him uh it always cuts to you guys doing your um rituals especially when Alfie was on the the boat doing um I think she was during the banishment of the pentagram right oh yeah yeah she was um her her dad um her mother and father are both Thelemites, uh, which doesn't come across on Paranormal State because the production company wasn't really, for, first of all, the production company themselves didn't understand what the fuck that was. And second of all, they really did not think that the audience would. And so they styled Elfie as a Wiccan uh, because at that point, especially <laughs> thanks to Buffy the Vampire Slayer, most, uh -huh. most people in the viewing audience at least knew what a Wiccan was. And, and so you don't get to see, it was really the great tragedy of, of Elfie's role in Paranormal State is you didn't get to see some of the really potent high magic she's capable of doing that she grew up with. Like so many people don't have, at that point I'd run into so many people who claimed that they had a, a family lineage tradition and they were talking out of their posteriors. And here's quiet <laughs> little Elfie. 
we get we and, get those people too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're they're everywhere. Like it's easy it's easy it's easy to talk a good game, especially on the internet. And then here's quiet little Elfie doing her little like artwork, and I'm like, wow, that's summoning. Oh, whoa, you got some interesting stuff in that art. Wow, she's oh my dad taught me. And and then you then then I got to see her dad's artwork, and holy moly, um, his. Her father passed on um, while the show was going on. Um, yeah. But but if folks are curious about the the tradition she was raised in and, and trained in, Tony Mollick, M O L L I C K. Uh, oh God, I'm trying to remember what his frater name is. Ugh. He's got a, a couple of books. He was James Music's star pupil and uh, now a teacher in his own right. Wow. Now for these. For some of the spirit keepers who are like really, really new, like say they are like really, really young and they've, they've kind of just discovered this, they may not really kind of know about your background. Um, mm. a, a, a lot of them are, are basically being introduced to you some you know, for the first time, actually. Um, can you give them like, like a quick definition of, of what House Kepru is and just yeah. so they can kind of look you up and understand you better? Okay. Uh I, I come with a long and complicated explanation. Uh, took a deep breath for that guy. Yeah, she took yeah. a really deep breath for that. <laughs> I mean, a simple one is you may see me on television as uh, a psychic. I was raised in a family where psychic abilities were accepted and encouraged to explore, but also raised in a family that placed a great deal of value on academic research and scholarly research. So I come at this as both an experiencer and a researcher. And on top of that, um, I have a complicated but very profound personal belief in reincarnation um, that I've existed before, that I have a connection to a group of people. And that connection dates back to a temple that is either mythic or prehistoric. And it really doesn't matter because we're here right now. In 1994, I wrote the first version of a book called The Psychic Vampire Codex. At the time, it was simply the Codex or the Codex Vampiricus, um, Vampire Codex. And from the work and teachings in that and from my research and, and personal explorations on uh, what it meant to be a psychic vampire and what did that manifest as someone who was also reincarnated and felt that there was a connection to uh, being vampiric on a soul level, something that I carried with me over and over again. That work in the uh, early 90s led to the founding of House Kepru in 96. It wasn't called House Kepru until uh, 98, I believe. And we've been around since. Uh, we started doing uh, an open house, a gather, uh, in 2000. We've done that at least once a year, every year since. We are, we are the many born. We are the immortal. Eternal, we wander the aeons, moving to the rhythm of our own inner tides. We're here as a group. We do a lot of collective shadow work, which is inextricably linked with our past life work, kind of sorting out who we've been before and the choices we've made and what that means for where we're at now and how do we choose to shape our future differently. And that temple that I mentioned we believe it was a temple of wisdom. And so if we have one big thing that we try to bring to the world, it's facilitating everyone 
to find their truth and their wisdom and to create spaces uh, in communities that are nourishing and nurturing for people to explore their particular way of doing things. We are a left-hand path group. And so it's not um, really about, you know, bowing to a God or a goddess. It's finding the God within, finding that spark, finding your authenticity, honing your power through that, and then determining the path that your particular spirituality manifests in. Now, with with House Kepfer, is that something that you already know who was connected with it? Like, for instance, if someone would to come to you and they're like a fan and they feel like they were connected with it, would you already know who they were or how would they join you or connect with you? We don't require people to have been tied back uh, all, all the way in the back. I will say that in the early 90s, as I was putting all of this stuff together, one of the things that started to convince me was there, there were every once in a while somebody that I'd run across. and I'm like, I swear I know this person. You know, and in doing more research on the idea of soul groups and the connections that we can forge that can be carried over lifetimes, you know, a lot of that started to make a little bit more sense. Haskepru as it exists right now is uh, a magical society. People are not exclusively vampiric within the group, um, although it definitely started as a vampire house. And you don't have to be tied into that past. Is it possible to recognize someone? Um, the most important part about that, if somebody feels that they have a connection to that, is is the memory stuff. And the memory stuff is really only important in as much as it impacts who you are and the choices you make and the baggage you carry now. And in that respect, if someone feels that they've got a connection to the past with us that they recall, um, we, we've got a, a group called Imasi. They, they don't even have to be members of the house. They're not oathed. They're just acknowledged as having a connection. And they have a right to ask questions about that, to share what they recall and either have some, some confirmation uh, or in some cases, apologies, because <laughs> we didn't always get along. Well, speaking of that, have you encountered a large amount of racism in the vampire community or just the occult mm. community at all? Oof. There is there is systemic racism in pretty much anything that has been touched by European culture, Christian culture. Like, I, I, I don't know that there's a way to avoid it. And I think the, the hardest part about it is it's so frequently unconscious. Now, it's not only and exclusively unconscious. Where I have found some of the most blisteringly obvious and destructive racism, straight up white supremacy tends to be in a lot of the left-hand path groups. And that's something that dates back decades and was baked right in from certain groups that really held the Nazis in high regard and wanted to recreate Tula, wow. Tula Nazi stuff. Like you, you find this in uh, a number of different groups, sometimes explicit and sometimes quietly until you get to a certain degree. So yes, it's, it's definitely there. You know, the obvious places I think are less problematic in the long run because it's more damaging when you don't realize that there's racism baked into what you're doing. And that requires like a lot of awkward and uncomfortable work for people. Oh, wow. One of the interesting things with the vampire community, so I was involved in a book, um, Something in the Blood, uh, Texas journalist Jeff Gwynn and his assistant Andy Greiser uh, started doing research on the vampire community as it existed in 1996. I, I was involved in some of the back end research. Um, I'm, I'm interviewed in it in a little bit. And one of the things that they noticed was 
pretty much every single person that they were interacting with was white. And they, they, they you know, came to the fairly basic conclusion of like, this seems to be like a mostly like Midwestern American thing. But those were the people who were coming forward and talking about it. And what they didn't take into account is those white kids in, you know, middle America really hadn't ever been in a position where talking about being different or wearing their difference on the outside was going to put them in direct physical harm. So there were plenty of other people who just did not speak up because they already had a burden of hate directed at them. They did not need to add to that by being witches or pagans or openly, you know, anything else that was not going to be accepted, especially at the height of the satanic panic. It was eye-opening to me when I first went to the vampire community in New York City because it was incredibly, delightfully diverse in, in, in a vibrant way that like I, I wished I could have like picked up and taken to some of the other communities that I worked with in the Midwest where everybody was just so used to being barred from places just because of how they looked when they walked in. Does that wow. linger? I mean, does that linger? Yes, that, that some of that still lingers. And, and it's not just um, the, the vampire community. We've got a lot of racist and appropriative stuff um, in anything that's come from the new age. There's a, lot of com- there's a lot of hard conversations that I think that we need to have on what's the line between syncretic belief and appropriative belief. What's appreciation versus taking advantage of something that... And then what do we do with who looks different from us and what our culture has sort of primed us to think that should mean? Uh, for House Kepru, one of the hard things has been um, there. there is, you know, undeniably for, for many of us, a connection to, to many other cultures, Egypt being a, a pretty obvious one. Uh, and I've never presented us as comedic reconstructionists or comedic orthodox because I don't want to give... Um, the mistaken impression that we're trying to be Egyptian. Um, Were some of us Egyptian at some point? Yes. Um, We've got folks who've got memories that go back to to Sumer and to Babylon and all over the planet, honestly. Man, there's ways that I've seen those sorts of connections, especially in the past few decades, be presented in a positive, unifying way or in a way that is just toxic. We try to do right by it and just take each lifetime as a lesson, as something that enriches us and enlarges us, and hopefully, ideally, makes us more capable of understanding that humanity's diversity is its strength. I I have similar uh, um, connections with people who were in the Midwest or even um, in the South, coming up north to the city, New York and Washington, D.C. And a lot of times they, you know, they, 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 they are um, vampires. You know, they, they categorize themselves either, you know, lifestyle, size or sanguinarian. And they come into the city and they're like, wow, I didn't know that, you know, this, this group of uh, our, the vampire community have like raids. Like, yeah, it's not just a, 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 a lifestyle. It's, you know, them going out for dinner with, with, yeah. with one another. It's, you know, we're not 
in coffins and we're not like always in cemeteries like we, you know we do you know mundane things too so yeah i remember somebody who well, came up from from florida and visited and was just just incensed like terribly disappointed that like we weren't just I don't know, stalking around my house in velvet gowns and like brocade what? constantly. <laughs> what, like, Michelle? Okay. <laughs> like, um, I mean, my house is definitely goth. There's really no getting around it. Like, I like that aesthetic. Her house I'd amazing, be a vampire guys. whether I liked goth or was a soccer mom, honestly. Like, that's not going to change. I just <laughs> happen to like things. <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah, Vogue should knock on your door to give you a house tour because, guys, her home is like, it's it's amazing. I love her interior. Yeah, Vogue. Michelle's waiting for you to do an interview. <laughs> well, I, I, no. I finally finally got the point where like we can kind of do what we want with it, and you know have have my buddy Griffin who is capable of making it look fantastic on a budget. <laughs> okay, so going into since we're talking more about um, vampirism, have you ever broken the rules of the black veil, Michelle? I mean, I wrote it, uh, so <laughs> on one or two occasions, um, I, I, actually, I've got one specific time where uh, I, I fed without clear and explicit permission by kind of bending the rules, um, and it was at a time where, like, I was, I, we, we've probably all been there, where, like, circumstances are such that, like, you're just, you're just starving, like, you do not have any of the things um, or any of the people to to support you, and there's a point where even if you are uh, really good at like long distance energy work and long distance feeding, there's a point in starvation where it takes more energy to reach out and, and breach that distance than you have in your reserves. Uh, and so this is at a Denny's, um, there, there was Denny's diner where, where we lived, like it was the only thing that was open 24 hours. It was the only place to like meet with people and, and you know, hang out late at night and there was a waitress who was like the, the usual waitress and she knew that we were weird and she knew that there was some stuff going on but she wasn't someone that I knew well enough to be like hey can I have some of your energy but I an oblique way was like she, she could tell that I wasn't feeling well and that I needed something and technically by, by the way that I've written the stuff in the black veil I should have had like a full conversation with her completely explained to her like what this was going to like like what is energy and what is all of this stuff and by the way I'm vampiric um, but the circumstances were not really feasible and it was certainly not part of her worldview so there was an agreement to offer something and I was like all I really need is for you to give me your hand and she's like will that help you and I'm like it will but <laughs> It's definitely playing a little loosey-goosey with the rules. Um, and I've, I've never forgotten doing it. Um, and, and sort of what, oh, what, what one has to do about, like, you know, what is ethical and how can you have those conversations? And at what point is it actually infringing on the other person more to explain to them a worldview that would be almost, almost violent to them, almost an attack to the way in which they looked at the world? I don't know. It, it was a very wibbly ethical place to be. Was this before you knew what ambient feeding was or oh, yeah. were you oh, still yeah. doing no, the book? I, I knew, I knew ambient feeding. I, I was actually in a bad enough place where it just wasn't mm. really working. Like there, there is a point of starvation. Um, like I said, like, like most folks who've been there will know where it just won't be enough. Like, like you need a little nice. bit more 
from someone. Um, and so I had, I had passed beyond being able to like do much of anything beyond just getting by through the day um, f- from ambient stuff, but like actually getting back to a point where I had enough to really function. I, I needed physical contact. I just make an effort to not get to that point anymore. Were you still wearing high heels going to Denny's? Because <laughs> I know that Alaria was talking about you um, wearing high heels in your investigation. And I always yeah. picture you wearing high heels before, like on a day-to-day basis for some odd reason. <laughs> uh, I, I had uh, leather boots with three-inch heels because uh, I, I am only 6'1", which is short for my family. Um, and in the back of my head, I should be at least six foot three. Uh, so for, for most of my adult life, uh, I, I wore at least three inch heels. Uh, I don't so much anymore. Um, there's just a point where I was like, you know what? Practical boots are much better when you are going up and down ladders in abandoned prisons. <laughs> the, all, all of Paranormal State was filmed in three inch heels in these these biker boots. <laughs> it's funny, um, when I do... <laughs> Uh, our clients are used to me wearing heels, so <laughs> they if I'm not wearing heels, they're like, okay, well, Elle, that's not Elle right there. Perhaps she's being influenced right now, and I always mention that you wore heels to <laughs> investigation, yeah. so, yeah. I mean, if, if your ankles can sustain it and your back, if you're comfortable, why not? I mean, like, it's it's like any other, it's like any other article of clothing or accoutrement. And I, I mean, there was a point where like the outfits that I wore for Paranormal State were kind of part of my ritual dress, that, that leather trench coat, which I still have, that has a great deal of magic worked into it and warding and other things worked into it. Uh, and the boots were um, also a grounding thing for me, like a, um, not to get too complicated with it, but energetically speaking, the energy channels in my legs are a little eroded. And so making sure that I can find the ground with my feet, which have a lot of neuropathy, nerve damage, working with basically like an energetic prosthesis and working that into the leather of the boot and working that into uh, the the metal tang uh, and and making the physical fashion a part of the magic is is definitely uh, a part of how I function. So yeah, the the boots were more than just uh, Nothing wrong with them being like my my little nod to wanting to be taller and my little bit of vanity, but they were also ritual tools. She said only six foot one, guys. I wish I was six foot one. (laughs) She said only six foot one. (laughs) You gotta understand, my grandfather was six foot eight and he had a brother who was seven foot two. Uh, and everybody in my generation is uh, you know, like like six four, six five, six six. Like I am, I am the short one. My growth was stunted because of my early heart problems, and like I should probably be six foot three. I will stick with it. I am very annoyed at it, but you know, bodies are bodies are what they are. <laughs> you know, I was actually going to ask: Are there any benefits to gothic fashion for vampires? So I think you actually touched on it there when you mentioned that, that you had woven certain things energetically into the, the garb. But like, are there any other things that you've noticed? Like, are people wearing capes or shoulder capes for more than just the aesthetic? I think anybody who really understands the power in fashion and in appearance, in glamour and how you can work that into uh, your choice in clothing and in your jewelry makes use of it. And, and I will certainly say within the vampire community, wow, from the, from the 90s on, I, I met people who it wasn't merely fashion, it was part of their ritual dress, part of the goth fashion, part of the like taking on the 
appearance of the vampire was an empowering act of presenting their identity to the world, of projecting the strength and the magic of that identity, whether it involved putting fangs on to evoke that aspect of the vampire or a cloak to evoke that aspect or just the jewelry that you wore, the makeup that you wore. All of those tattoos can be ritualized, can become tools of channeling magic, uh, tools of harnessing and, and kind of projecting glamour back at people for certain effects, uh, and can also just remind you, center you in your place of power. This is who I am and what I am, and I wear it on the outside to remind myself what I carry on the inside. And for the, I guess, the fictional side side of things, have you come across uh, any people, you know, anyone that's kind of been a big fan of Anne Rice? Like, how do you, how have you encountered them and how do you mm -hmm. work with them? Like, do you like her books? Do you like her philosophies that she, that she presents in the fictional world of vampires? Uh, let me see. I think I was 16 or 17 when I first read Inter Interview with a Vampire. And you have to understand, I was, I was raised Catholic. So I read that and my first reaction was like, oh, do I need to go confession? Cause I think I'm reading gay porn. Oh goodness. Like, like there was, there was an, oh, my stars and goddess, what's going on with this? Um, so that was my first, I, I, and I was a very late bloomer for those things. Like I, now I understand like a lot of it went over my head because I'm basically asexual. But at the time I was like, I like the vampire thing, but what is going on here? Meeting other people who are into, so, so the first thing that is important to understand is the vampire community, the community of people who are both lifestylers or blood drinkers or energy vampires, the community in general cannot be removed from the influence of writers like Anne Rice, of games like Vampire the Masquerade, of various aspects of, of music and in movies, uh, The Hunger, for example. There was this cultural milieu that presented the vampire as this empowered magical archetype beyond gender beyond life and death eternal immortal and infinitely not only powerful but comfortable in their own power the magic in that archetype is what appealed to so many people in the vampire community. It's, it's why you have folks who are vampires by identification in addition to people who are vampiric naturally. And how you can have somebody who's vampiric but doesn't identify with the vampire archetype. But you can have people who, they are not vampiric, but this archetype, this, this mythological figure has so much potency to it that they can embody that, that they can use that to, to channel their magic in the same way someone who adopts the word witch and reclaims all the power of that. There's definitely people who were influenced by Anne Rice, um, Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough, influenced by the Hammer horror films or by Dark Shadows, uh, titillated by the early Dracula. Like, like there's so many different layers to it. And in the, the 90s especially, the, the vampire scene in New York City um, the beginning of Endless Nights, that is the, the vampire thing that often happens down in New Orleans, those started as vampire LARPs, as, as live-action role-playing games, where people played a game, Vampire the Masquerade, but also discovered how the vampire 
spoke to them on a level of identity or were playing the game because it was the one place where they could let it out safely, where they could start the conversation of, okay, all of you people who are just playing this because it's a game, you like vampires, right? Well, have I got news for you? Some of us actually are. And before people are like, oh my God, a role-playing game and you're getting confused about it, it's really important to understand that the folks who wrote that game there were definitely folks who were practitioners who were not unaware of what they were weaving into the the story and the sort of reality of, of the role play world it's interesting because the one of the biggest complaints about the satanic panic with like dungeons and dragons was that you know your children are going to be corrupted because now they're going to believe that they can summon demons like a wizard in D&D and they'll accidentally <laughs> attack with satan but just look around at like Oberon, Ravenheart, Zell, or you know all of the other like old magical workers or, or Wiccans and witches that you know from that time period who grew up with that, who literally, really obviously were also playing D&D as part of their personal awakening, as, as part of their exploring this identity and ultimately owning it as something that is more than just the game, something that actually speaks to them, the game that gave them sort of a virtual reality within which to explore possibility. So wow, I feel like I feel like we only just scratched the surface. Oh my gosh, like yeah, we, yeah, no, there's, there's, like, there's so much there. Uh, what are your current projects? Like, are you offering classes? Like, are, is there a new book coming? Um, is there going to be a is there going to be a twenty twenty one gather? Like, what are what you know for the for, for the listeners who want to connect with you, learn from you? Like, how can they learn more from you? Like, what what are your new projects? Okay, so my website has everything on it. Um, I teach classes and do a lot of work with Patreons, and my Patreon is Patreon.com/haunted, which is probably the easiest of all of my URLs to remember. Uh, and through that, uh, you know, monthly classes and access to a community where you can ask me questions, people get to like kind of steer me toward what the next book is. They get sneak peeks on everything, uh, kind of backstage passes to stuff. I just, I will be launching a deck of shadow work cards that are a companion to the, the contemplation cards. So it's a, a deck of not, it wasn't intended to be an oracle deck, although it ends up being used as such. Um, the shadow work deck, each card has a difficult word to either use as a meditation or to draw once a day to kind of like give you a theme to work on. And these are hard words to dig into. Denial, ignorance, slavery, like things that are really require us to look at the things in ourselves that we normally shy away from and ask hard questions about what are our attitudes with these and, and how do we work with them. So that's probably the most recent thing. I um, recently came out with the 10th anniversary edition of the Dictionary of Demons. Uh, and goodness, what else is going on? Which is my favorite book, by the way. <laughs> I had so much fun with that. Uh, there's so much. There's, there's so much to dig into. Oh, oh yes. And, and, and House Kepru because of COVID and, and everything, and because things were sort of still up in the air, uh, we decided to do House Kepru's 2021 Gather virtually as well. Um, we're calling it Astral Gather, and it is the end of July. So July 30th, 31st, and August 1st, I believe. 
we have got um, Matt Oren as our headliner and several other really awesome people presenting. It is uh, more details for that are, is up on keparu.org under gather. And I believe that you probably can find a link on my website for it as well. michellebelanger.com. And if you are uh, a speaker of American English, michellebelanger.com. Excellent, folks. There you have it. Uh, for you vampire keepers out there, definitely, definitely look her up. You have to uh, at least dive into her world. You will be enriched beyond your wildest dreams. Not only that, her live streams are are very informational. So check her out on YouTube as well, everybody. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I make Kifi, which is, is fun. There'll probably be a new batch coming up. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to speak with us. Like this is like amazing for people who need to learn more because we actually have people who have been who have been com commenting on the YouTube channel who really don't understand that like, yes, there are side vamps, there are sing mm -hmm. vamps today who are alive. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank yeah, you so are, much. There are real vampires. They're all over the place and yes. it's a complicated community, but pretty rewarding. Um, thank you. And, and, and thank you for, for being patient and working with stuff. Uh, you two have been lovely. It's been a great conversation. I've loved some of the, the questions that are ones that I don't normally get that like really dig into some stuff. So that's that's always great. Of course, of course. Alrighty, y'all have a wonderful day. Thank you again. Thank you. Bye. Bye.